0: Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast.
1: Uh, Our text for today is going to be Revelation chapters 6, 7, 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 and 19 So you'll definitely want to have your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to be able to read the entire text today, but it's important that we have the Scripture in front of us as we kind of get a 30,000-foot view of the book of Revelation today. So if you've got your Bible with you, a paper Bible, grab a pen. You might want to jot some notes down. If you're using a Bible app, you can take notes on the YouVersion app, I know. You can also always go to mypcc.info and hit the Sermon Notes tab there to take some notes as well. Uh, Could I start today by just telling you the story of how I fell in love with Rebecca Uh, it was I still remember the day it was sunny outside sky was blue birds were singing I was in college and I was riding my motorcycle down the hill on campus my long hair was flowing in the wind when I looked off to the side and I saw this girl sitting under a tree out by the dorm and she was reading her bible and I remember at that moment just being struck and I had two thoughts come into my mind thought number one I like what she's got. <laughs> and thought number two is, well, I better start actually, you know, like reading my Bible so I don't get outclassed by this girl. <laughs> and, and that moment was the beginning of the journey of me simultaneously falling in love with Jesus and Rebecca Moyers. I found out pretty quickly that this was the girl that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. I mean, she was gorgeous and funny and godly and sort of smart. Uh, obviously not that smart if she was dating me, but you get the point. Um, and so I, I, I liked her. And I, so I decided to put a ring on it. A while later I went and I, I talked to her dad and then I sold the motorcycle to buy the ring and I drove down to Oklahoma where she was living at the time and I surprised her and we had a big day. Uh, we had a big day full of uh, games and trips, three states, all kinds of family and friends, and airplane ride, piano music, you name it. It was a huge day but I gotta admit that as the day went on, I was nervous because this girl was amazing. And I'm, in case you don't know it yet, not (laughs) and and I got to admit that that as the day goes on and the big moment gets closer and closer I mean I was nervous I I, I, I didn't know what to do I I, I mean my my palms are sweaty (laughs) my knees are weak, my arms are heady there's vomit on my sweater already mom's spaghetti but on the surface I look nervous (laughs) I was calm and ready I don't remember the lines, bear with me (laughs) So eventually the day wears on and we get on a Harley and we go out to the creek to the spot of our first date right as the sun is setting over the water and I got down on one knee and promptly forgot what to say and I I didn't remember my lines and I'm bumbling around like, like a stuttering fool and I couldn't figure out what to say but finally I managed to get the question out and by God's grace, the girl of my dreams said yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm a thankful man. And, and that's what makes a good story, right? A good love story. Because who cares how you get the girl as long as in the end the guy gets the girl, right? And, and that's our story too. You know, the book of Revelation is the story of Jesus' bride. We are Jesus' bride. It's the story of us waiting on our wedding day. Because Jesus has chosen us and now we're just waiting until he comes back and the guy gets the girl, And in the meantime, the message of Revelation is simple. Stay faithful to Jesus. Stay faithful to Jesus, church. I don't know about you, but but I I thought being engaged was kind of hard. Because it's like this in-between season. You got your feet in two different worlds. You're like, yeah, you're an item, but you're not really a package deal because you haven't really sealed it yet and you're still waiting and there's all kinds of work to do before the wedding. And in the same way, this engagement period for us as the bride of Christ is not easy. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 through 19 today tells us that we're facing two main obstacles as we wait for our groom. Revelation tells us that the first obstacle that we're going to be facing is suffering. Suffering, and, and we know this already, we've talked about this, that the believers that John is writing to here, they're, they're going through pain, and we will too, and, and we know this, that, that pain is one of the big obstacles for a lot of people with their faith, because they have this question, if God really is all good and all powerful, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And Revelation chapter 6 hits this question right on the nose. Now, remember, last week Steve showed us this scene from Revelation chapters 4 and 5 in the throne room of heaven, that the Lamb of God is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, and he's the only one in the entire universe who's worthy to take this scroll and to open the seven seals on this scroll. That's where we left it in chapter 5. But today in chapter 6, we're going to see that the Lamb actually does start to open these seals on the scroll one by one. And with every seal he opens, utter destruction. Destruction is unleashed. The Lamb opens the first four seals, and with each of those seals comes the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You might be familiar with that imagery, perhaps. The first horseman is a white horse, a white horse who comes to conquer. That horse symbolizes the empires of the world throughout history Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, Hitler's Germany, North Korea, and yes, even America. Whenever a person rises to power and attempts to bring the world under their control, the white horse is present. Then the lamb opens the second seal and out comes the second horse. Verse four says it's a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. The second horse represents war. One study I read this week shows that at least some part of the world has been at war for at least 92% of human history. Wow. Wow. That's tragic. That's not at all how God designed his world to function. The lamb opens the third seal, and with the third seal comes the third horse, a black horse whose rider represents famine and economic oppression, because when empires take over and wars rage, we all know what happens. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The lamb opens the fourth seal, and out comes the fourth horse, a pale horse, the color of a corpse. And verse eight says its rider was named Death. Because that's where we're all headed, right? The day's going to come when, when your heart will stop beating. The means are many, but the end is the same. We all die. And these are these four horsemen. Now understand that these four horsemen are not a reflection on what has happened or a prediction of what will happen. No, they are a revelation of what always happens of what is happening right now because we live in a fallen world with unjust governments and war and famine and death. This is the way that it has always been. We live in a world of pain. And the Bible's clear that Christians are not exempt from the pain of the world. We see here in chapter six that Christians suffer and even die in the pain of the world. And and in fact, in verse 10, these Christians who have died for their faith, they cry out to God. They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? and avenge our blood and we feel that too right we ask that question how long lord is this virus going to keep our elderly people alone and afraid how long lord will children in africa have to lay down and try to go to sleep at night while their bloated bellies are still hungry How long, Lord, until no more wives wonder what their husbands are doing? How long, Lord, will we have to keep burying young men in caskets draped with flags and 21 gun salutes? How long, Lord, till no more mothers miscarry and no more parents divorce and no more fires rage? How long, Lord, until you come and prove yourself to the world? How long? There's a pastor by the name of Brian LaRitz who's helped me learn how to talk through some of these deep and and really sensitive topics like this. He talks about what he calls the five levels of communication, ranging from shallow to to deep. we'll start with the most shallow. The most shallow level is is level one, which is just the cliche communication. It's just not really sharing. You know, hey, good morning, how are you? Fine, how are you? You know, you're not really saying anything. That's the shallowest level of communication. But then we move down to level two, and, and there is a little bit of sharing. You're sharing facts, sharing what you know, well, how's the weather over there? Well, weather's been great this week. Say, you think you're going to go deer hunting this year? Yeah, probably so. Sharing facts, and, and most guys hang out at level two. This is where we operate in small talk. Then you go a level deeper, and there's level three. And that's your opinion, your communicating opinion, sharing what you think. Hey, who do you think's going to win the Super Bowl this year? Well, I don't know, but probably not going to be the Colts. Philip Rivers is really looking like he's starting to show his age, you know. Then you go a level deeper. This is where you really start getting into deep communication. Level four is emotive communication. That's sharing how you feel. Be like if I said to you, you know, I'm really starting to get worried about this virus. I haven't seen my grandma in months. I'm pretty scared about how she's doing. Sharing how you feel. But then, then is level five, the most intimate level of communication at all. It's transparency. Not just sharing what you know or what you think or what you feel, but this is sharing who you are. It's opening up. You know, I, I've really struggled for a long time with self-control in these last few years. I've just been really embarrassed at, at how I can't really seem to manage my weight. And, and, and that's that's vulnerable. That's the deepest level of communication transparency. Now, the problem is with these deep questions, like the question of suffering, or, or, or pick your topic. These issues like uh, yeah, racial injustice, or, or politics, or your wife had a hard day at work, whatever it is. What tends to happen in these sensitive discussions is that one person is hurting. And then the other person comes into the conversation, and instead of coming in at level four or five to empathize, they come in at level two, the fact level, lawyer level, we could call it. And they just say, well, you probably don't have all the facts straight. I'm sure that's not exactly what's happening here. Let me explain the real situation. And the conversation doesn't go well, does it, married people? Because she's on level four, and I'm stuck up here at level two. And, and that, that means, yeah, there, there is a time and a place for level two facts. Yes, of course, but not before empathy. Not before unity and understanding and listening. And, and most of the answers to the problem of suffering that I hear just kind of hang out at level two, the fact level. But here in Revelation chapter six and seven, God goes straight down to levels four and five. These Christians in chapter six, they cry out a level four question. They say, how long, Lord? And and even the pagans actually cry out about this suffering with a level four question, chapter six, verse 17. They say, who can withstand it? Who can withstand the pain and the suffering and the hardship of the world? And it's a rhetorical question and I'm sure they don't actually expect an answer, but God gives them an answer anyway. Who can stand? Chapter seven, verses nine and 10, look at this. John says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now, remember, we talked about this. Revelation is apocalyptic. It's an unveiling. And so in response to the level four question of his people, God pulls back the curtain to show us that at the end of the day, we are going to be the ones standing, wearing white robes, symbolizing victory and purity like a bride in her wedding dress. I think these verses in Revelation chapter seven are some of the most beautiful in all of scripture because it's this picture of all of God's people from every nation, every people group, every language standing before his throne, united and victorious. Uh, I I love verse 14. It says, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Uh, Take a look at this video of some of the members of our church uh, reading these verses from Revelation chapter seven.
0: All right, ready? Yes. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud
2: voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped god saying amen praise and glory
0: and wisdom and thanks, and honor and power, and strength to be to our God, forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them.
2: Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat.
0: For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to spring of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
2: My name is Sadia
0: Arif. And my name is Ashbil. We are
2: from Pakistan.
0: And there are many languages spoken in Pakistan, but our national language is Urdu, and our mother tongue is Punjabi. I'm Ryan Hardy, and I serve in Papua New Guinea with Pioneer Bible Translators, and I'll be reading and talk Pisin. It's the trade language of Papua New Guinea where we serve. My name is Ili Trabelsi, and I am originally from Beirut, Lebanon. My
2: name is Mezak Kundabatu. I am from DRC, Congo. I'm going to read my local language, Kinyamulenge.
0: My name is Zachary, and I am from Morocco. And today I will be reading in Arabic. I'm Ed Furness. My wife and I were missionaries in Indonesia for 10 years. And today I'll be reading a verse in the Indonesian language.
2: My name is Tracy. My Chinese name is An Chunxia, and I come from China. We are Norma and Herrera, from Venezuela, and we want to read in Spanish. Después de esto, miré y apareció una multitud tomada de todas las naciones, tribus, pueblos y lenguas. Eran tan grande que nadie podía contarla.
0: Estaban de pie delante del trono y del cordero.
2: Vestidos de túnicas blancas y con ramas de palma en la
0: mano. agakizana up around him, see a king, one time a red man. now or for something, he stop alive. Now look, look, he go along, see a king, now only broke him screw, now put him pace, long, go down long ground, now go to long god. Li Hinal al to Al Majdu, Wal Hikma to Shukru, Wal Islalu Wal Kudra Wal Al Kuwatu, Ila Abedil Abidin Amin Salas Orang Dari Paratu to Itu, Burkata Kaparaku, Siapaka Orang Orang young Manake Juba Juba Putaini,
2: Dandari Manaka Breka. What do Tasho, what you, you> ouais> need
0: this is the first time that we have to do this. We have to do this. We have to do this. We have to do this.
2: We have to do this. We have to ना this. We have to do this.
0: क्योंकि wow. So yeah, God doesn't give us
1: a level two answer with all the facts about your pain today. He's not interested in explaining it away. He's not interested in trying to get himself off the hook for it. But, but God does give us a level five answer. Transparency, he gives us himself. And he tells us that a day is coming when he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he does tell us that at the end of the day, we're going to be wearing white robes and we're going to be victorious for despite our suffering because of his suffering on our behalf. And in the meantime, he says that he's with us and he's listening. Catch this, Revelation chapter eight. He says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Another angel came and stood at the altar with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. Did you catch that? When we pray in the midst of our suffering, when you cry out to God in your pain, heaven's at levels four and five. All of heaven is standing still in silence to listen. So yeah, 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 we do go through suffering. That's the obstacle of the bride. But Revelation chapter six and seven says that for the the Christian, suffering is a call to hope. Suffering is a call to hope. But you know, suffering is only a call to hope for the Christian, because for the non-Christian, Revelation chapters 8 through 11 says that suffering is a call to repent. In in chapter 8, uh, the Lamb opens the last of these seven seals on the scroll, and kind of everything blows up, and it's like, bada bang, bada-bang, bada-boom, the world kind of ends. But then, all of a sudden, before chapter 8's even over, it's like we start all over again with seven trumpets this time. So what's going on? Well, we have to pause right here and talk about what's called progressive parallelism. Now, progressive parallelism is a Jewish writing technique where they would state a truth and then state it over and over again in a different way to further their point. And they do this over and over again, expanding their point each time. Let me give you an example of a truth stated in progressive parallelism. Uh, I could start by telling you that uh, for Rebecca and I, we have a crazy house, That's truth number one, and you'd kind of sort of understand it, but then I could state it a different way to further my point, and I could say this. I could say, my wife and I have small children. Oh, okay, then then you understand a little bit about why we have a crazy house, and then I could take it even further and tell you that we are pregnant with our third boy, and now you really understand why my house is crazy, and that's true, by the way. Baby boy Proctor is due in April, and so uh, if you have any tips on how to raise a pack of wolves, I'm all ears. (laughs) Back to Revelation. We get to the end of the world here with the lamb opening the seventh seal and, and, and now all of a sudden we rewind and we do it all over again with seven trumpets this time. But this time, God dials up the intensity and these trumpets are more destructive than the seals were. Chapter six said that these seals affected a fourth of the earth, but chapter eight tells us that the trumpets affect a third of the earth. God's turning up the heat. He's dialing it up a notch. And goodness, if you go read this this week, man, if you read the trumpets, you're going to see some crazy stuff. I mean, there's hail and fire mixed with blood and a blazing mountain thrown into the sea and a star falling from the sky to make the waters of the earth bitter and a plague of locusts that tortures the earth. Suffice to say that John is basically saying here, hey, take your worst nightmare and make it even darker, then double the pain factor, then double the scare factor, and then triple the whole thing again. And that will be just a tiny little taste of the pain you will experience if you reject God. Revelation chapter nine, verse six says that the pain inflicted on the people of the earth is so bad that during those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Wow. So why is God doing this? Here's what I want you to know. Sometimes God allows suffering to prompt awakening. Sometimes God allows suffering to prompt awakening. It often takes a crisis to wake people up. Maybe you can say that from your own story, that it was a hard thing that woke you up to the Lord. When I pray for my unbelieving friends, I often pray that God would break them, that he would tear them down so far to the point that they absolutely recognize their need for him, that they cannot do it on their own. And that's what's happening here with the trumpets. Remember, God's not doing this to destroy the world. He didn't turn it up all the way to 100. He's giving people a chance. And we see this after the trumpets are done. Chapter 9, verse 20 says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. God's goal was repentance. He was giving the world another chance to wake up and come to him. Listen to me, on judgment day, there will be no one who is able to say, I didn't have a chance. I wasn't warned. I didn't understand. He didn't give me a shot. No, no, no. Scripture says that we are all without excuse. So yes, for the Christian, suffering is a call to hope. But for the non-Christian, suffering is a call to repent. But <laughs> suffering is only the first obstacle that the bride faces before her wedding day. The second obstacle that the bride faces might be even worse. Seduction. 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 Because we are the bride of Christ, right? Remember, we are his. You remember, the message of Revelation is stay faithful to Jesus. When Rebecca agreed to marry me, I, I put a ring on her finger uh, so that the whole world would see that this, she's mine, she's taken, she is off the market. Now, this didn't happen, but let's just pretend that it did. Let's imagine and say that uh, while Rebecca's waiting on me, she gets a little tired. She doesn't really like waiting around. We were dating long distance. She was in Oklahoma. I was in Missouri. Let's say she gets tired of waiting on me to come back and marry her. And so there'd be some nights where she'd take that ring off, go out on the town, have a good time, flirt with some of those big strapping Oklahoma farm boys. Now we'd be horrified if that happened, right? Because she's engaged. She's not supposed to do that. But that's the temptation these believers are facing. And that's the temptation we face too. The temptation to live as if what's right in front of us is all there is instead of waiting faithfully for our groom. Seduction. And, and, and for the believers that John is writing to, the seduction, it might have sounded like doubt. Ah, bowing down to the emperor surely won't hurt, right? I mean, you still love Jesus in your heart. Ah, just, just go make a little sacrifice at the temple of Jupiter. Nobody ever got killed for doing that. And look, what ha- look what's happened to the Christians. Maybe this Jesus guy isn't such a good idea after all. Seduction. But in Revelation chapters 12 through 18, John rips the mask off of those lies and exposes them for what they really are. And we're gonna come back to Revelation 12 next month, so we're not gonna spend too much time there today, but suffice to say, it's a retelling of the Christmas story from heaven's perspective, except this time there's a dragon in the nativity scene. Paul tells us about Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, the devil knows that if we saw him clearly, we would recoil at the sight of pure evil. So instead, he makes his appearance beautiful, and his words soothing, and his demeanor pleasant but revelation you remember is apocalypsis it's an unveiling so john rips off the devil's mask here in chapter 12 to expose satan for who he really is a horrifying violent dragon huge and blood red with malice dripping from his jagged teeth and death on his fiery breath so yeah here's your level two answer if you wanted it why is there so much evil and suffering in the world because we have an enemy who is powerful and active and he is at work to seduce the bride of Christ. And how does he do it? Well, we see three particular weapons that Satan uses here, symbolized by three characters that we meet in the next few chapters. The first weapon we see is symbolized by a character that we meet in the next chapter. Chapter 13 introduces us to the first beast, which represents godless government. That's the first tool Satan uses. Chapter 13 says this, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Any government that opposes God's will is in league with the beast. When Stalin and Chairman Mao slaughtered their own citizens, they were in league with the beast. When Hitler initiated the Holocaust, he was in league with the beast. When the British Empire institutionalized slavery and spread it all around the world, they were in league with the beast. And when our government censors Bibles in schools and promotes gender confusion and sexual experimentation and kills hundreds of thousands of unborn babies every year, we are in league with the beast. Godless government, it's the first tool Satan uses. But there's a second weapon that he uses too, represented by a character we also meet here in chapter 13. A second beast. False religion. False religion. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. Now catch this. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Whispering those false gospels into your ear. God helps those who help themselves. Ah, God will surely let you into heaven if you're just good enough, nice enough, right? Just work hard. Oh, no, nobody else can tell you what to do. God just wants you to be happy. And when we buy into those lies, the beast wins. Godless government, false religion, the third weapon that Satan uses is symbolized by another character who might be the deadliest one of all. The prostitute. The prostitute. She represents hedonistic culture, self-indulgence. Chapter 17 says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by the many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Notice here that sin is spiritual adultery, that you are betrothed to the king of heaven. But when we give in to the greed and the self-indulgence of the world, we are crawling into bed with the prostitute. And and, and, oh yeah, she whispers in your ear and she promises to make you safe and rich and happy if you just drink her wine, but don't believe it. Don't do it. Stay away. No, verse four says, says that she held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things, and the filth of her adulteries. Oh, it looks good on the outside, but inside, oh, her cup is just full of filth. Oh, and she loves, she loves to make you drink it. She loves to make you drink it when she gets you to harbor bitterness instead of forgiving When she gets you to lash out instead of listening. Oh, when she gets you to sell your soul for a salary. When she gets you to hide again in the darkness of pornography and substance abuse. When she gets you to be emotionally distant from your spouse. When she gets you to whisper gossip about a coworker. When she gets you to hate and harm yourself. When she gets you to sleep around outside of marriage. When she gets you to give in to gluttony. When she gets you to bow down at the temple of consumerism. Oh, and she would love to convince you that you have the right to do whatever makes you happy, but don't listen to her. Her bed is not a playground for the American dream. It is a battleground for your very soul. So, if suffering is a call to hope, then seduction is a call to holiness. To holiness. Because our groom calls us, he says in Revelation chapter 18, then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Earlier, we saw the seven seals of what God allows, and then we saw the seven trumpets of how God warns, but now we see the seven bowls of how God judges, and no one in bed with the prostitute will escape. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10 says, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. God will not let evil go unpunished. So come out of her. But if, if we, the bride, can endure the suffering and resist the seduction, then the wedding day will finally come. But we haven't, have we? We're stained. Over and over and over again, it it looks like our story is gonna end in a messy divorce. Certainly not a royal wedding. I mean, what kind of bride would show up to a wedding in rags like this? Weddings are expensive after all. But no wedding costs more than ours. We saw the price tag already. Revelation chapter seven, verse 10 says that we've washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's a high price. Ephesians five, Paul tells us what it cost our groom. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He has taken our rags, stained with sin, and in their place, he's given us a white dress. I remember when my bride walked down the aisle wearing a white dress, and in that moment, all of the hardship and the pain and the hard work and and the imperfections of the past just faded away because at that moment, she was mine. All mine. And you know, our story is not a perfect journey, but at the end of the day, the guy gets the girl. Uh, there's, a, there's a preacher by the name of Robert Fulgham who tells the story of a huge wedding he performed one time. And, and I mean, the logistics of this thing were staggering. There was an 18-piece brass and wind ensemble, 24 bridesmaids, groomsmen, flower throwers, and ring bearers, the armada, the likes of which is only typically seen in a military invasion of a sizable country. And, but amazingly, the, the planes were all working. I mean, the details were coming together right up until the procession. He writes this. Ah, the bride... She had been dressed for hours, if not days. No adrenaline was left in her body. Uh, left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church while the endless parade of maidens went on and on and on, she'd walked along the tables, laden with gourmet goodies and absent-mindedly sampled first the little pink and yellow and, and green mints. Then she picked through the silver bowls of mixed nuts and ate the pecans, Ooh, followed by a, a, a cherry or two and, and some black olives, A handful of glazed almonds, a little sausage with a a toothpick stuck in it, a couple of shrimps blanketed in bacon, and and a cracker piled high with liver (laughs) pâté. And to wash this down, a glass of pink champagne. Her father gave it to her to calm her nerves. But what you saw as the bride stood in the doorway was not her dress, but her face, white, What was coming down the aisle was not just the bride. This was a living grenade with the pin pulled out. The bride threw up just as she walked by her mother. And by threw up, I don't mean a polite little lady like Erp into her handkerchief. She puked. (laughs) There's just no nice word for it. I mean, she hosed the front of the church, hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bearer, and me. Only two people were seen smiling. One was the mother of the groom, and the other was the father of the bride. (laughs) Eventually, Fulgham says they pulled themselves together for a quieter ceremony in the reception hall. And he says how everybody cried, as people are supposed to do at weddings. Mostly because the groom held the bride in his arms throughout the whole ceremony. And no groom ever kissed the bride more tenderly than he. But the best part of the story is that 10 years after this, everybody was invited back to another party to celebrate this matrimonial disaster. And they watched the whole wedding on three big TV sets. Now tell me, how in the world could those people celebrate a wedding like that? With a bride that messy? Because at the end of the day, the guy got the girl. So church, as we wait in the mess, stay faithful to Jesus. Let's close together today by reading Revelation chapter 19, a preview of our wedding. I'm going to read the words in white, and then we'll all read together the words in yellow. Let's begin. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And church, you're invited. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we love being your bride. And we're a messy one. And so we come to this time where we take these elements, the bread and the juice again, to admit that we have been unfaithful to you and yet you have been unfailingly faithful to us. And so we praise you at this moment as we look back on our past, how you have forgiven us. As we look here in our present, how you are empowering us to be faithful. And as we look forward to our future, when we will be united with you in the wedding banquet of the Lamb, and we will live happily ever after. In Jesus' name, amen.